It's Thursday, February 4th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Incredible medical story of 22-year-old Joseph Dimio, who was the first person to receive a successful face and double hand transplant. After a car crash left Joseph with 80% of his body burned and 20 surgeries later, his doctors thought he would be a good candidate for the transplants. He is now six months out from his surgery and healing and progressing very well. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today, joins us for how it all happened. Next, Amazon founder and CEO Jeff Bezos is stepping down from his post. He will not be leaving the company, however. Instead, he will serve as executive chairman, where he'll continue to work on innovations for Amazon and big decisions about the future of the company. Patrick Thomas, reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for what this change in position means for Bezos and Amazon. Finally, California Governor Gavin Newsom continues to take political blows as a recall effort against him takes in more signatures, and Republican opponents are emerging to run for governor should the recall qualify to be on the ballot. Former San Diego Mayor Kevin Falconer has thrown his hat in the ring, and so has businessman John Cox. Seema Mehta, political reporter at the LA Times, joins us for who is stepping up as the recall effort gains steam. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. A lot of motivation, a lot of patience, and you gotta stay strong to everything. You can't really give up. Joining us now is Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thanks for joining us, Karen. Thanks for having me. We have a, an incredible story. A guy by the name of Joseph Dimio, he's 22 years old now, in 2018, he was in a fiery car crash that left him with over 80% of his body burned. And what happened now is he is the first person to receive a successful face and double hand transplant. Karen, it's an incredible story. Tell us uh, how this all played out. He received 20 different surgeries and his plastic surgeon said, look, I've done everything I can do and introduced him to a surgeon at NYU Langone who had done a number of face transplants. That gentleman saw Dr. Eduardo Rodriguez. He saw uh, Joe Demio and said, I can help you, but I think you should have hands as well. And it was about a year long process, a little less than a year of testing Joe to make sure that his eyes, despite the burns on his face, he couldn't move his eyelids, but his eyes themselves were fine. His teeth were fine. So underneath this burned facade, he actually was in pretty good shape. So that made him a good candidate. He was young. He was also incredibly determined. He wanted to get his life back and his independence back. So he was a great candidate for this procedure. And miraculously, they found a donor who would work for him because he'd had blood transfusions after the accident. He had a lot of antibodies in his bloodstream. And so 94% of people in the world his body would have rejected a transplant from them. So they needed one of these 6% people, and they found him about 10 months after they started looking. Obviously, the tragic side of a transplant is one person gets to live, but somebody else has passed in order to make the donation. So it was an incredibly generous donation from the family to give the face and lower arms from the forearm down to this young man. And they're yeah. six months out from the surgery now, and the team is you know, yeah. trying to declare a success with it. Obviously, he's way ahead of schedule. As you mentioned, the swelling in the face will go down over time. But, you know, he's already regained some sensation in the hands. He's been able to use them, you know, brush his hair and all that stuff and do even some light exercises, lifting weights, doing push-ups from like a bench and stuff. I mean, that's a lot yeah. within six months. And as you mentioned, the donor 
gave everything, you know, from the top of the head down to the neck, over to the ears and the arms at the forearms. That's a lot and a lot of stuff to connect, to reconnect. You mentioned that the team, the operation team, spent over a year practicing all of this. They went through great pains to be able to do this right. And it was about an 80-person team involved. So it's a huge number of people and probably another 50 or 60 with, uh, involved in his rehabilitation. So this is not a simple procedure at all, but obviously dramatic for this young man. It's given him a life back. And yes, he's got two goals left. He's achieved everything. As you said, he can shower by himself. Spaghetti is his favorite food, but he was having trouble picking up. He couldn't pick up a piece of pizza or a hamburger with his burned hands. He didn't have enough opposable thumb and forefinger, enough grip to do that. And now he can eat by himself that way. He can play pool. He's very into physical fitness and he is lifting weights. Even on days he doesn't do physical therapy, he does that at home. He tries to stay fit, but he likes food a little too much. Um, <laughs> so he's not, a, he's not as fit as, as he would like to be. But it's really an incredible story. The, the other piece that I found really striking about this story is that in order to help the donor family, which obviously was making this, this incredible donation and to help them feel less of a sense of loss, actually during this surgery, an aspect of NYU printed out, 3D printed the man's face and arms, and they put it back on the corpse oh, wow. so that he would look normal to the grieving family. Um, and I just found that an astounding aspect and obviously important to the family. And we don't know much about the donor other than he died of a stroke. I know the family right. wants to remain anonymous for now. And uh, Joseph did send them a letter, you know, thanking them for, for all of it and everything. One of the other interesting things that I thought, too, was kind of the psychological effects of this whole thing. That's why the doctor said they wanted okay. to give him the face transplant, too, because a lot of times victims can't recognize themselves if they've been disfigured or something. But they can recognize themselves a lot quicker, you know, if they do the face transplant and things like that. So that was the psychological right. effects of this was also very interesting. Yeah, I found that fascinating as well, that even in, in an MRI and a brain scan, you know, when you look at a picture of yourself, if you're severely burned, you don't see that as you. But when you see any other face, he was able to very quickly adapt to having this, this new face and seeing it as himself and seeing his hands as his own hands, as opposed to something outside of himself. Well, I, like I said, just an incredible story. Uh, wish him the best of luck and, and continued right healing and, and just getting back to normal as best as he can. I know he's got, as you mentioned, he's very driven. He's got a lot of goals still that he wants to achieve. So good luck to him. Karen Weintraub, health reporter at USA Today. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. This is going to allow him to kind of train the next CEO as well. He'll have some influence in terms of strategy and kind of easing his successor into the role as, as an executive chairman. Joining us now is Patrick Thomas, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Patrick. Thanks for having me. On Tuesday, we got word that Jeff Bezos, the founder and CEO of Amazon, is stepping down. He's going to be carrying on as executive chairman. Now, this is kind of a, a little practice that's been popular in some big companies as of late. But what does this mean for Amazon? What is he going to do now <laughs> that he's stepping down as CEO? My understanding is he's still going to be highly involved in the company, just tweaking things a little bit. He is stepping into an increasingly popular role in the executive chairman. We've seen quite a few longtime CEOs, such as Bob Iger from Disney, Last year, made a similar move into the executive chairman from his CEO role. And in the case of Bezos, as a founder, he, he has said he's still going to be 
around, he plans to put more time into some of his other passion projects, such as Blue Origin, The Washington Post, some of his other initiatives. But he is still very much around. Some of the experts in management we talk to who study the executive chairman role say that in a lot of respects, nothing has really changed here. When you're the founder, you still have such a strong influence over the company. And this is going to allow him to kind of train the next CEO as well. He'll have some influence in terms of strategy and kind of easing his successor into the role as, as an executive chairman. He's still around. He still has very much influence and is able to kind of guide the company. But people aren't, won't be reporting to him in the same way as, as if he were the CEO. But he is still very much around and looking over the company. Andy Jassy, he's going to be the one stepping in as CEO next. He was running Amazon's cloud computing business, uh, Amazon Web Services, which is just huge and is becoming a bigger part of a lot of different companies, tech companies, parts of their business that they're working on. So he's going to be stepping up in there. But let's get back into a little bit more about kind of the difference between CEO and executive chairman. They say Bezos is still going to be involved in a lot of what they call one-way door issues. So these are just huge decisions in the direction of the company. And that is one of the benefits of like the executive chairman is they get to still be involved in strategy and a little bit of operations. And in this case, as the company said yesterday on their earnings call, that he is going to be involved in some of these big decisions, such as acquisitions or getting into the grocery business. So he is still very much going to be part of that. And especially with the key difference between an executive chairman or even the chairman role, the independent chairman on the board, is that this is someone in the building still this is someone who is going to be engaged in day-to-day operations in the business. And you hear chairman roles, those are very common, but that's still someone who might show up at board meetings. They're not in the company headquarters. They're not in the building. The executive chairman role is very much in the building and overseeing some of the day-to-day operations. The key difference, again, from CEO is the vice presidents, the other executives, they don't report directly to the executive chairman. They report to the CEO. But in many respects, the executive chairman would still have say in strategy and, of course, have the ear of the CEO. One danger I'd note is some of the experts we talked to said this can go bad if the founder or long-term CEO has stepped into the executive role, hangs around too much, is too much of an influence, doesn't quite want to let go. That's kind of when things can go a little wrong. It's kind of striking that balance of, being too over the shoulder of the CEO versus only showing up to a couple board meetings a year. It's finding that balance. As you mentioned before, he's the founder, so he has everybody's ear still. So that is going to be an important balance, and we'll see how they, they if they can reach that. In a letter to employees, Jeff Bezos did say, I've never had more energy. This isn't about retiring. And we know about Jeff Bezos' style when it comes to running the company. He always says he wants to emphasize being relentlessly innovative. And this kind of role seems like perfect for that, where he can maybe take off a little bit of the day-to-day business and, and as we mentioned, make those big one-way door issues, just seeing where the next step of Amazon will go because it's such a huge company now. We rely on it for so many things. Retail, uh, as we mentioned, the cloud computing stuff is bigger now. Jeff Bezos is going to be able to take this opportunity to take the company in big ways. I feel like a lot of people don't know that he styles himself as very much an innovator and entrepreneur. He's been involved in scores of the company's patents and Amazon and its affiliates and Blue Origin, the space company, over the past 20 years. He's very much been involved in a lot of the company's innovations. It's going to be interesting to see, as you said, how they strike that balance, 
what's really next for Amazon. Jeff Bezos is going to remain a fixture there. The news came down. He was stepping it down at CEO. And I think it was like, oh, my God, what's going on now? But, you know, he's still very much going to remain within the structure there. So we'll see how it all plays out. Patrick Thomas, reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. We're seeing a flattening of the curve. Everything that should be up is up. Everything that should be down is down. Case rates, positivity rates, hospitalizations, ICUs, testing starting to go back up, as well as vaccination rates in this state. But we are not out of the woods. Joining us now is Seema Mehta, political reporter at the L.A. Times. Thanks for joining us, Seema. Thanks for having me on. Wanted to talk a little bit about California politics. We've been hearing about this recall effort against Governor Gavin Newsom. They are still collecting signatures. Last time I saw, they had about 1.3 million signatures. I think they need 1.5 by mid-March. So they're on their way. We'll see if they make it there. But what we're seeing is, you know, a bunch of people, Republicans already coming out saying they want to run for governor if the recall qualifies. Some familiar names. Uh, We have a San Diego mayor there. We have uh, John Cox, who just ran against Gavin Newsom and lost. Seema, tell us what we're seeing going on right now. Um, Well, signature gatherers have been gathering signatures for quite some time now, and they do need 1.5 verified signatures um, by mid-March. They say they've collected 1.3, but um, in terms of what we actually know through the Secretary of State's office, only about 400 and some thousand have been verified. So while they're sitting on a pile of signatures, there's sort of this painstaking process to make sure these are registered voters, the forms have been filled out correctly. So we really, we can't say that they have 1.3 yet. Um, I mean, they say they have 1.3, but we don't know how many of those are valid. And typically, typically a big chunk gets thrown out because they're not signed or they're, you know, um, or they're dubbed invalid for other reasons. So we actually don't know exactly where they are, but they are feeling like momentum behind their back. They they are raising money. Um, They've raised, you know, close to $2 million, if not more. Um, And they're clearly feeling momentum on the streets um, over Governor Newsom's sort of his handling of the coronavirus, uh, the pandemic, um, the school closures, the economic closures, um, just sort of how how the economy is going here and the all the uncertainty we've seen over the past year. Um, and so the question is, yeah, now we're starting to see some candidates emerge from the woodwork um, who will challenge him if the recall does qualify for the ballot. And you mentioned Kevin Faulkner, who's the former mayor of San Diego, and he's twice elected um, in a city that is, has more Democratic voters than Republican voters. So he has shown an ability to cross the aisle. He worked with the Democratic City Council. He was successful in reducing homelessness there for the last couple of years of his tenure. We saw John Cox, who he's a businessman. He did run for governor in, two, in 2018 against Gavin Newsom. He spent close to $6 million of his own money on that race, but he still lost pretty handily, but, you know, 20-some or 30 points. So any Republican who runs is going to have a challenge in this state, given how Democratic-leaning the state is. You know, the, the voters here have not elected a Republican statewide since 2006. Um, but that said, you know, there's some new polling out that suggests you know, Governor Newsom does have some vulnerabilities. There's a new poll out by UC Berkeley Institute of Governmental Studies. They basically say more than a third of the state's registered voters say they would vote to recall Governor Gavin Newsom. 45%, though, say they would oppose a move. And and this kind of illustrates how difficult it's going to be, even if it qualifies to go on the ballot, it's still going to be a tough go to actually recall him. And and that's why it's so important that some of these uh, other people that hope to get him out of there and be installed as governor kind of start running now. They have to start getting their name recognition out there again. It's a tough go to be able to do it. You mentioned in your article, people were going to be asked two questions. Do you want to recall Governor Gavin Newsom and who should be put in place? So these people need to make their names known now. That's true. And then the other question is, you know, the last time we had a recall of a governor in the state was 2003. 130 candidates ended up running. 
movie star Arnold Schwarzenegger ran. And, yeah, I mean, he pretty much blew everyone out of the water because he had so much name ID. Yeah. He was such a well-known celebrity. He was so famous. Right now, there is no Arnold Schwarzenegger that we know of waiting in the wings. So um, so for people like Kevin Faulkner or John Cox, what you just said is, is absolutely right. You know, they have to get their, their faces out in front of them, California voters, to you know, so that they know who they are, they know their policies. And that's a really difficult state in a state as large as this, where the only way to really effectively do that is on television. But television is really expensive. We have some of the most expensive media markets in the country. Running against Governor Gavin Newsom, these Republican challengers obviously going to hit him on the economy and the way things are going in California. But really, Mm -hmm. the main thing is the pandemic, the response to the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And we've seen a lot of stumbles out of Gavin Newsom's administration on this front. We know the big fumble when he went to uh, dinner at the French Laundry. We've seen the vaccine rollout stumble here and there. And this is also kind of what fueled the recall effort, gave it a little bit of new life because it's been going on for some time. And this is what kind of got it going again. Right. And actually, when they first started the recall effort, this wasn't really uh, a thing, the pandemic, but it's given them some momentum. I mean, obviously, there are some sort of self-made errors like the French Laundry dinner you mentioned, which, you know, the optics of that were horrible. While, you know, the rest of the state is being urged to stay at home and you know not go out, not have to restaurants that are indoors and to only dine with members of your household. Uh, but in terms of the broader role, um, response to the pandemic, whether it's the vaccination rollout or, you know, the school closures, the business closures, there's obviously a lot of frustration among citizens, among parents, among small business owners. Um, but I think what it comes down to is will voters place the blame squarely on Gavin Newsom or will they, you know, say this was sort of like an, an a, a circumstance unlike any we've seen in our lifetime and everyone is trying to figure out how to deal with it you know i mean it's, it's hard to point to a state that ha- you know handled this absolutely perfectly there's been a lot of flaws all over the country so the question is do voters blame the governor or do they think he tried his best against something that you know was a, a, a huge disaster that no one's ever dealt with before i mean going back to that uc berkeley poll obviously these things shake out along party lines independent voters in that poll though 40 percent said they're opposed to recalling newsom 32% support it. So the independents are going to have a large presence there. And I mean, how many people turn out to really vote in these other types of elections and whatnot? So, you know, we'll see if the numbers will be there at all throughout it. Right. And that's the question. Who's most motivated, most motivated to turn out? And we don't know that answer yet. And first of all, if they, we still don't know if there are enough signatures, but we should, those signatures are due in the middle of March. It'll take some time for the counties and the states to validate those signatures. And then there's this whole calendar that starts of various, bureaucratic hoops have to be jumped through. And it's unclear if there is a recall election, whether it'll occur, you know, in perhaps August or maybe November. The timing is very uncertain. And that can also make a difference if by September, if things are turned around, if you know, schools are open, if the economy is relatively open, people might feel differently than they do right now when you know, we've seen a lot of inconsistency. So, I mean, the timing of the election could also impact, you know, what happens. So there's a lot of unknowns out there, but this is still you know, this is something that I think a, a lot of people last year, the political experts in both parties, last year were very skeptical of this going anywhere. And in recent weeks, it really seems like there there's noticeable momentum um, on the recall backer side. So who knows if they'll get there? Who knows if they'll get enough signatures? But people I speak with in Sacramento and elsewhere who are not involved in the recall believe now that it's more likely than they did in the winter, in December and November. Definitely. And that's why it's getting so much attention. So we'll see what happens on all of that. Seema Meta, political reporter at the L.A. Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Divers is produced by Victor Wright. 
and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is your Daily Dive.